DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Some technical difficulties with the phone, so Steve Cleveland is going to join us thanks to Zoom, because Zoom is taking over the world. So it's going to sound a little different, but it's still going to sound like Steve. Steve, good morning. Good morning, guys. You hear me? Yes, we can. Thank goodness. All right, we want to uh, start here where we started with you the uh, the last couple weeks. Uh, the last dance on Sunday night, it's it's two hours of new programming, so we're all watching it. I don't know if that would have happened if, if things have been different, but they aren't, so we're all watching it all the time. And I think one of the takeaways here for a lot of people is Jordan was really stressed and drained and exhausted as he chased the third title in 93. There have been Bulls fans that said, boy, if he hadn't gone to baseball, they'd have won eight in a row because they'd have won the two while he was gone. Look at how tired and fried he was. Do you think he really could have won eight in a row, or would they have gotten beaten somewhere because he was just spent? You know, I mean, I I think that's difficult to tell. You could certainly tell that he was spent – and uh, that all of it had just gotten to him from the media, the press, and all that. Uh, personally, I think it may have had more to do with him winning three more later on, the fact that he could get a break, take, get away from it, and uh, refocus. Uh, but it, it's incredible as you watch this to see the intensity of the media. And, you know, you are the media. I've been part of the media. But at that level uh, where you have no life, and now he's at a point where he's coming under scrutiny for things that uh, people are finding out that aren't major issues. But, you know, when you put a guy up to where, you know, he is uh, in everybody's mind, he's just been perfect in everything he's done. And then all of a sudden he's got a few personal flaws and they just dig it out every time they see him. And it's just amazing the amount of people that surrounded Michael. And, and it didn't matter where he went. There's a reason he, you know, that golf was – his therapy and even though he was gambling or this or that you know i mean at the end of the day because he gambles uh you know a thousand dollars for him was like you and i playing a two dollar nassau <laughs> it's uh that's just what he did but that is where he found a lot of peace and solace was getting out there with his buddies and uh you could tell he was spent and i i never really noticed even thought about it to be honest with you uh but it's really apparent watching all the video yeah, that's one of the things I think is tricky for a coach because in the documentary, he's talking about being on the golf course. Put the gambling stuff aside. I don't really, that's not my point here. But he was saying that he appreciated Phil Jackson, who was a veteran coach, understanding the need to give the players off, let them get away so that they can come back rested. How tricky is that as a coach to know when you need to press on the gas as opposed to release the gas to let these guys breathe a little bit? Well, I think, first of all, they had a veteran team. So there was a great deal of trust between that coaching staff and those players. Um, and I, I think I, I know in teams, I'll, I'll give you an example. And, and Kelly Wesley and I, I remember several months ago, we were just chatting and talking about our first time to the NC2A tournament when we kind of turned the, turned the tide and we, and we had actually won the Mountain West Conference regular season title. And uh, we were playing in the, in the, you know, we won the Mountain West Conference tournament. Then we went and we played Cincinnati uh, down in San Diego. And you know, I, it, was my, it was my first experience. I, got, I had a good staff. We were young. And, and, and probably at that point in time, as I look back to my experiences, we did too much. 
And it was one of those things where our workouts, our practices, everything was intense. Everybody was excited to be there. And we felt like, you don't, you don't want to take a moment off. You want to be prepared. You want to be watching film. You want to be getting shots up. We had competitive workouts down at the tournament. And looking back, I would say that it was a game where at halftime it was close. I think it might have been tied. And they ended up pulling away and winning. Uh, but we had a conversation about, you know, we probably overdid it. And, and, and I think that I look back on that and think, I think, I think you know, they're right. I mean, we, we look back there. We, we, had, we had a good shooting team. But we had really, really mature players. But I think we didn't take the time to give them some freedom and enjoy the experience. And we did that at other times. And guys, I think, played better. But I, I think there is something to be said about just taking that pressure off, dialing it back a little bit, enjoy the moment. Yeah, you've already played 30-some games. It's not like you're going to change your offense. Maybe you're going to tweak an inbounds play or uh, maybe a couple of quick hitters because you're playing a different team. But I think that a, a wise coach – understands his team and says, hey, let's take a step back and let's gather ourselves. We'll continue to watch film or whatever the circumstances are. And I, I think we were all excited as a coaching staff, the players. We only knew one way to do it. You know, what we, we should have done probably, and as we did other times, gone and done something socially, got away, go see a movie, uh, you know, maybe go play miniature golf or whatever it might have been, but do something away from the game that got their mind off it because I, I love that team, that, that first team. They, they, they had great character. They were intelligent. They could shoot it. We just had a little bit of everything that was really good. Uh, and so uh, that was my ex personal experience with it. And it did help me in the other tournaments we played in. And we were, you know, we were really close in games. We couldn't quite get over the hump. But it did make a difference to get the guys more relaxed for that. Former BYU basketball coach Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider, joined us here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Episodes 5 and 6 of The Last Dance chronicled the Olympics and Isaiah Thomas, who had an NCAA title and two NBA titles, being left off the team. There was no reason for that, except for politics. And I'm curious, and that Olympics team was just rife with it, because there's the politics of Isaiah getting along, or not getting along, uh, with Jordan and Jordan hating him, plus Isaiah having run-ins with Magic and Bird over time. But there was also, hey, we're going to have a college guy on the team, and then should it have been Shaq who was better, or Leitner had more team success, well, Shaq hadn't played in other international tournaments. So there was a lot of drama and politics swarming around choosing that team. How much do you find that that's just the norm in the world of basketball? You know, there are going to be personality conflicts, and I think you've got to put that aside. Uh, it, it's to be honest with you, it's a shame Isaiah didn't play. I mean, his pedigree and all the things that he had done, uh, I understand that you have that, and I think all of those guys would have been able and very capable of, you know, kind of, extend an olive branch and, hey, this is, we're playing for our country. Uh, I, I don't see any reason it wouldn't have worked. There, there might have been some, uh, it, it may have been difficult at first, but I'm sure that they could have all got through it. So that's unfortunate. And and I think that, I don't, you know, we don't, I don't think we really know the story there. I mean, obviously there were feelings and there were conversations. Um, and, I, you know, back then the Olympic Committee, this was a brand new thing to bring the NBA guys in, kind of turn this thing around. But, yeah, you're, you're going to have – and that's, that's what coaches do. You, you have personalities on every single team you have. And, and there are guys that have – that don't get along and they're not best friends when they leave the, the, you know, 
and I, I may have mentioned this before, but I remember my last junior college team with Ray Frosten, who played in the league for 14 years, and Ron Solis, who came and played for me at BYU. One was from Oakland, one was from New York. They, they, they weren't in love with each other. They competed. They, they were strong-willed. They weren't doing things socially together. But we made a point of making sure they were together at the right times and the right moments, not when we were playing games. And, and there, there were some altercations. There was a competitiveness of practice. There were guys getting after it. And, and that happens in every program. And you control that as a coaching staff. And sometimes, you know, you, you want that. You want that competitiveness. You, you want them to battle every day. But you got to have it under control. And you don't want to get to the place where, you know, it, it involves hurting the team or it, things become physical in practice. But, I mean, anybody that's coached long enough has had situations and circumstances and practices where games get competitive, practice gets competitive. Tempers flare. People say things that they may not normally say. I mean, that's that's the nature of this business. I mean, it's competition. There's going to be talk. Those things take place. But the key thing is to make sure that it's under control and that the players understand what the big picture is here. So I think they could have worked through it. They had great coaches and a, a lot of veteran guys. Uh, it's unfortunate it didn't work out. But to lay that on on Michael, uh, I don't know that that's right either. What's a bigger form of motivation, the desire to succeed or the fear of failing? <laughs> oh, boy. That's, uh, we've experienced it all, you know? I mean, I, th- I think the people that can put the fear behind them, fear is a healthy thing. I mean, it keeps you on your toes. It gets you in a place where you uh, don't take things for granted. There's, there's an attention to detail. I mean, I think as a coach, we operate like that. I mean, it's like, we, how much film can we watch? How much can we do? But to be honest with you, the more positive of those two traits is just that desire to be successful and to have that attitude about wanting to win. But so it, there is a combination. I mean, I think you have a little bit of both, but if one exceeds the other, where you, you're really confident and we're going to win, and, but you don't do take the preparation, then you, know, you end up not reaching your full potential. But the other end of it is if you're so frozen and fearful by all the little minutiae and all the things that are going on, you're never going to be your full self. So you have to have a little bit of both. Uh, but, but certainly that you're going to err, err on the side of confidence and uh, the desire to win and the desire to be the very best you can be. But when the pressure's really on, you're, you're not worried about losing. You're thinking about making the play that's going to win. If you're going to win the game, I guess you could be thinking about losing and then lose the game. But does that fear of failure, in, you know, with 10 seconds left in a one-point game, does the fear of failure win it? I wouldn't think so. No, no, no. And I don't think anybody that I know, my, at least my experience, is those, those are never feelings I had you know, in my mind and, and any team I've ever had. If we were down one and we were shooting free throws, we believe we were going to make them both and win the game. I mean, sometimes that doesn't happen, but uh, – I don't, I don't think ever I can remember a team where there was a fear of failure that ended up hurting us in, in any situation or circumstance. But that it doesn't mean – I mean, you take a look at just pregame stuff. The day of a game as a coach and a player, I remember as a, it was way more difficult than a coach and a player because you've got so many things going on. I mean, I, I, had, I was looking at so many different scenarios and making sure we were prepared before we went out there. I mean, I always – had to, at some point in time, find myself 
in my room, dark room, go in, close my eyes for 30 to 45 minutes and just clear my head and fall asleep if I could and come there just absolutely refreshed and ready to play. Everybody has different things that they do to get ready. Coaches have things, players have things that they do. But for me, when I felt like the pressure was getting to me, uh, that's where I went. I just, I just, I would just take myself and just get in my room, maybe listen to some music, fall asleep for a little bit, wake up, rest, let's go. I mean, the plan was already in place, but you sit around and worry about things and, and that's not constructive. And so you end up getting back and that's what worked for me. Everybody's got different things they do to get prepared. But I, I never, ever, really ever thought as a coach or a player about the fear of failure. I always felt like, hey, we've we got a chance. And you know what? There were a lot of games in my career uh, as a coach, especially in rebuilding programs, where we had opportunities to upset teams, where there wasn't a great deal of pressure on us. And the pressure comes when everybody expects you to win. You know, it's easier when you're the underdog and there's no expectations. But when the expectations comes, then that fuel, that, that fear of failure plays more of a part in the lives of players and coaches. But again, you just have to have the things that you do to block that out of your mind and stay focused on the present, in the moment, and about being the best you can be. One of the things we're seeing with this last dance stuff is Phil Jackson being this sage. You know, they're interviewing him. I, I don't know if he's in Montana, and it's obvious he's older. He's got white hair. He's got white white beard. So he's not really receiving any form of either praise or criticism. He's like this sage guy. But when he was going through it, there was this argument, oh, he just has the best talent. And so that's why he won six with the Bulls and five with the Lakers, and anybody could have done it. And I think to myself, well, wait a second. The guys who preceded him didn't do it, but yet he took the same players, and they won, and he won those 11 titles. So my thought for you is how important do you think he was in those 11 titles and obviously the six with the Bulls, and what made him as good as he was? I think I think a lot. I mean, obviously the triangle offense and, and all of the things that were happening on the floor and the talent, but we, we all know that it is always going to be the intangibles that make a difference, that, that the difference between being really, really good and being great oftentimes doesn't have anything to do with a jump shot. It doesn't have anything to do with athleticism. Don't get me wrong. Talent, you, talent, you got to have talent to win championships, but talent is never enough to get to the highest level and sustain it for a long period of time. You have to have the intangibles and the culture. You know, it was a little weird and strange, you know, to see this existentialist who, you know, was into yoga and meditation and doing those kinds of things way beyond before his time. I mean, people weren't doing those kinds of things. And, and he had, he found, I mean, Phil was able to find his inner self and help other people find their inner self. And, and there's a lot of different ways that people do that today, you know, and the, there's so many different organizations and groups that come into corporate groups and teams. I do some of that myself with culture building. And there's a lot of things that Phil Jackson did that nobody else was doing. And I do not believe for a moment. I'm not saying those teams wouldn't have been successful, but they don't get to where they are without Phil Jackson. And, and list, a lot of people look at him as some quirky, weird kind of, you know, dude out there that's uh, all over the place. And, and he's taking these guys and doing things. He's some kind of a hippie looking guy. That, But at the end of the day, I, just watching the video and the film on this, those guys have bought into that. 
I mean, they uh, they may not have bought into it at first, and, and I'm sure that initially they're going, "Is this guy crazy?" But his 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 ability to get guys to really clear their minds and to, to think through these things and find ways to meditate and put yourself in positions, all those yoga positions, all of those things have a way to just relax one and find yourself and be able to breathe. You know, breathing is a really important thing. You start thinking of a simple little thing like breathing wins and loses games. Guys are nervous, hyperventilating, can't, but you can just have a calmness about you. And you think about the world we live in today, you know, I mean, it's all about being mindful and calm and, being in the best place that you can be to be successful, whether it's in basketball, whether it's in teaching, whether it's in parenting. I think Phil was way ahead of the curve on this and had a lot to do with that success. I'm a big believer in coaching trees. It just strikes me as uh, just too bizarre and too mathematically unlikely that it's just an accident that these guys who win a bunch of titles worked with someone or worked for or with, either way, someone who went on to win a bunch of titles. And you look at Steve Kerr and the fact he played for Popovich and Phil Jackson. Could the Warriors have won a title with anyone coaching them? Probably. But could they have won as many as they won? And, you know, the Durant thing eventually, you know, didn't work. But it could have not worked earlier if Steve wasn't as good with personalities. So how much do the Warriors owe... Kerr and the people he played for. How much do you buy into the coaching tree there? Well, I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm a com- really supportive of what you just said. And uh, I think that when you look at the great coaches today, and, you know, I, I mean, when I coached, it was, it was a bit of an aberration for me to get a Division One college basketball job. I mean, I was a high school coach. I mean, I played at Irvine. I come out of there, go, taking the LSAT to go to law school, and I get a phone call, and the guy asks, wants to know if I want to teach AP government and, and history at a brand new high school, and and I, and I said, I never really thought about that. I thought I was I, I was political science major. My my whole focus was this, it was what I was going to do, and and then I had an opportunity to maybe to go over to England and play professionally for a little bit, and and I remember my wife saying, you know what, we just need to get, you know, you need to get a job and get to work and. And anyway, I ended up taking this coaching job with never, ever having a thought in my mind about being a basketball coach. I loved the game, and and I had some wonderful mentors, a man there that had been my high school coach, and uh, and shared things and learned things. And over time, uh, you know, I realized how important a coaching tree was in terms of everything you do from organization to practice planning to game planning. And I, and I think I really found that out. Uh, as I became a junior college coach, and I had mentors in my life, and but I was kind of new to it. You know, I didn't, I didn't, wasn't in a program where I stayed there and had my head coach Tim Tiff be my mentor, and I, it, it wasn't like that. What ended up happening is that people that I hired, and uh, you know, I, I look at Dave and and Juddy and Heath, guys that that have gone on to be really successful coaches. We were all kind of doing it at the same time. I'll be honest with you that you know there were things I learned from everybody. And I mean, probably the, the greatest mentors for me were Boyd Grant and Ron Adams. I mean, they had the greatest influence in my life. Ron Adams was at Fresno State. Of course, he's been the defensive coordinator for the Golden State Warriors now for a number of years. Boyd Grant was one of the most successful college coaches in the West Coast. I went to all their camps. I went and listened to them. I went to their practices. Those were my mentors. 
And then as things evolved, I kind of developed as I became a community college coach and became a division one coach. I took from what they, you know, I learned from them about organization and motivation. And, and, and then I became who I became. And I learned from, from Heath and from Dave and Juddy. You know, just having Juddy on our staff, think about that. I mean, I was never part of the Rick Majerus tree, but he was a brilliant coach. And, and his game preparation things were uh, different than some of the things I had done. I gleaned from that. And so, and sometimes we have a coaching tree where you're just right there. And sometimes you glean from it through assistance and others. But there's not a coach that I, I've worked with. Andy Toulson, who came in and had a perspective of the NBA and in college basketball. And, you know, just you, you look at the people. I mean, I, I think about the, 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 the coaching staffs that I've had over the 35, 37 years. I've learned something from everybody. But I, I do believe that having a coaching tree is really important. And, uh, you know, I, I, lo I look at Mark Pope today and look at where he's come from as a player and who he's worked for and been in situations and circumstances. And he, he is a combination of a little bit of everybody that he's worked for or played for. And that's, think that's what's happened. And uh, that's why we see – we don't see junior college coaches getting Division One jobs anymore. They're, 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 you're seeing the best candidates come either as assistants or head coaches from other programs, but they've been in a tree. They understand how Division One basketball works. And as an athletic director and as a president of a school, you want to hire people that come from good coaching trees. And so hey, I am grateful I had a chance to be at that level. And, uh, but I, I fully agree with you, both of you, that a coaching tree is everything and, and, and certainly – what the Golden State Warriors experience had a lot to do with their coaches as well, even though they had great players. So then do you feel a connection to BYU with the coaching tree angle because you hired Dave Rose, Dave Rose hired Mark Pope, and then obviously Mark Pope uh, succeeds Dave Rose, who you brought to the university from the junior college ranks? You know what? I, I, you know, the other day, this is a, it was a probably eight or nine months ago, I was in Provo, and I, I had sent Mark a – a text telling him I was going to be in town and uh, I was I was up there for a, for a wedding and uh, I said you mind if I come by and just you know see the guys I, you know I don't just not going to show up and he said no 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 he sent me the sweetest text he said listen that this is uh, this is you you started this you know in, in in terms of that coaching tree I never thought about that and certainly uh, Ian and Dave have probably forgotten more than I know but but at the end of the day. Uh, I felt a connection. That was a really sweet thing for Mark to say and to do and say, hey, I'm part of, I'm part of your tree. And uh, so in, hopefully in some little way that I've helped uh, to make that a better place. But at the end of the day, those things are really, really important. And uh, I think everybody needs to have – and I, I think we evolve. You have a system. You have a culture. You do certain things. And you learn over time. And you ch things are always changing. But there are some core values to this business that uh, are really pure and you got to stay with. And, and making sure that the intangibles are taken care of is really going to allow you to perform at the highest level. And, then, and when the moment is there, those coaches, those teams are the ones that win championships. And, and, or, they, or they just overachieve and do things that maybe nobody ever thought they could do, despite the fact that maybe they didn't have the talent that another, another team had. 
Steve, as always, we appreciate a few minutes and we appreciate your flexibility. Thanks for uh, the workaround solution to the phone issues and uh, coming on a Zoom. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad we're just zooming audio because I wasn't ready for a video. <laughs> <laughs> See you later, guys. <laughs>